Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can follow us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello again, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. Kim and I are here every week to talk wine with you, with the topics, trends, news, and everything in the wine world. How are you, Kim? I'm well today, Mark. How are you? Great. Thank you. First, we like to talk about what we Googled ourselves this week. So, Kim, what did you Google this week? So I Googled, specifically, I was looking for some vintage information for red burgundy. I did a tasting this past weekend for a group of people that we did a comparison of Italian wines and French wines. And I did the tasting blind, meaning that the people who were tasting the wines did not know what they were tasting. So they knew that that they had one Italian wine and one French wine in front of them, but they didn't know what the wines were and they didn't know which was which. So I had to Google the vintage troubles that the 2016s had in Burgundy because it was a bit of a tough vintage and I just wanted to make sure that I was still getting a quality wine for my group because there was a lot of hail, the weather was crummy, and some places came back with a pretty good crop and then other ones were completely decimated. So I was just looking out for the quality of the wine that I was showing people. Always good information. So tell our listeners, Kim, Burgundy is what grape? Red Burgundy. So Red Burgundy is always made from the Pinot Noir grape. That is the only thing that is uncomplicated about Burgundy. And the whites are made from Chardonnay. So if you like dry Pinot Noir, more like Oregon style, and you've never tried any red Burgundy, I would say, you know, search some of that. Go go to your local wine store or a local restaurant and see what they have on the list. And what did you Google this week, Mark? This week, Kim, I, you know me with my charts and stats. I saw this I statistic of, from 1922, the most popular grape being grown in California. Ooh. What was it? Bur- Burgundy? Burger. Burger. The burger grape. Did you ever hear of this? Maybe. B-U-R-G-E-R. Like hamburger. It German. Burger. Is it German? It's actually French origin, and it is a Venus vinifera grape. Okay. But at one time, this was the most grown wine grape in California, and it's still used for like jug wine bulk production really? today. So I thought, you know, you hear a grape, you're like, what the heck is that? But 1922, this was bigger than shot. <laughs> Fascinating. Our first topic today is from Wine Folly, one of our favorite websites and uh, wine geeks, I guess we (laughs) follow. And her article was about how gigantic floods made the Washington Wine County. So, Kim, first off, thoughts on Washington wine and this article in general? Washington wine. So, it is a lot cooler in the state of Washington than it is farther south in California. So, we tend to lump all American wine together generally, I think because we have so much from California. So, California produces between like 88 and 90 percent of all American wine depending on the year and Washington is 
is second, but it's not a close second. So there is um, there is good wine coming out of Washington State, but it is a different style from what you get in California. So it's cooler, but they get a lot of sunshine because they are farther north. And where the vineyards are located, which are on the eastern side of the Cascade Mountains, they don't get all that effect from the Pacific Ocean like most California wines do and like a lot of Oregon wines do. So it really almost is like a country itself in in its wine styles. There's a lot of red produced up there. They make a lot of Cabernet, a lot of Syrah. For whites, they tend to do a, a lot of Riesling, dry and sort of a little bit sweet. But the wines, for to me, taste similar to the wines that you get out of Chile, believe it or not. They're a little earthier. Sometimes they can be a little funkier. They're rich, but they're not rich in that big oaky way that a lot of California reds are. They're, they're really rich in their own right from the ripeness of the grapes. So this uh article, Kim, she focused on how ancient floods created the region. And I was thinking, you know, a lot of things happened geology-wise <laughs> that created certain areas in the wine world. But the floods that created the Columbia Valley region in Washington was actually, they said, 10 times more than the Japanese tsunami, the last tsunami. So it was huge. Yeah. Huge she, had, she had some graphics in this uh, in this article that showed the sort of the height of what one of these flood waves would have been. And it was super massive. And you could just think of all the power behind that water and then all of the stuff that it's going to bring with it. So often when we talk about wine areas and we get really geeky and want to talk about soil and dirt and stuff like that, we, we do sort of talk about, okay, what type of rock is it? How did it come about? Is it from is it from glaciers? Is it from rivers? Is it volcanic? How did it get there? And so for this sort of information, I think it's, it's really neat because it does show us that, hey, you know, once upon a time, this soil wasn't here. You know, it was brought from someplace else. And when those things get sort of mixed up they do uh they change the personality of the soil and then you know a lot of people think that that then changes the potential flavor of the wine yeah and that's the key these floods create these deposits that are have certain nutrients or rich and great for vine growing so a lot of interesting information about that and kim when you think about washington wines are there certain right away certain producers you think of i mean i know of two every time i hear washington there's two biggies well the big the biggest chateau saint michel so that that generally tends to be the big one that comes to my mind. And do they own other wineries as well? Other they labels? do. They kind of import oh, into Nori. So they, okay. I mean, they're huge. They source a lot of grapes up there. Precept Brands is also huge. They do the house wines. Mm-hmm. So they're a big producer as well. But I love, lately I've been loving Washington State wines. And I think when you're talking Cabernet and a bottle between 10 and $15 from Washington State, I think is more concentrated now than the fruit you're getting from California in that mm-hmm. price point. So if people have not explored it. I think this is great. And and a lot has to do with these soils from these floods. Yeah, I think it's a nice next step for people who like drinking California red wines to move to another place that is going to give you good bang for your buck, but also really nice quality. So whether you decide to explore Argentina or Chile, definitely give Washington a look because there's some good stuff from up there. And it still does seem like, you know, a a lot of Oregon producers are still very family owned, pretty small. But for Washington, it's, it's really a 
a different animal. There's there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, and they're still experimenting with all the different places that they can grow them and trying out some new grape varieties as well. But get so much sunshine because it is that much farther north than any of the California vineyards that we talk about that the grapes really are allowed to ripen really really well, even if the temperature isn't super high. So that that really is excellent for uh, for red wine production. And you mentioned Kim top grapes. For whites, it's Riesling and mm-hmm. Chard. For reds, it's Cab and Merlot. You mentioned that they're second behind, way behind way behind production. <laughs> there were some other interesting numbers about Washington State people probably don't know. Currently, there's over 940 wineries in the state. 350 plus grape growers. Over 70 varietals are grown in wow. Washington State. 64% is red and 36% is white. That doesn't surprise me. They make 17.5 million cases of wine a year. That's a lot which of wine. compared to California, like you said, that's actually low compared yeah, to Yeah, it California. still seems like a lot of wine. So interesting stats. And I remember years ago, there was a producer that was making wines based on soil, calling it like flood something oh i remember um, this but yeah. they were I one believe, was flood one flood was fire. fire yeah and i think they were in, from columbia valley which columbia valley is actually shared between washington and and oregon mm-hmm. so a lot of people don't know that when they see columbia valley they're automatically thinking it's washington uh, but it can be oregon as well so. and columbia valley is very large it's the largest appellation in washington so it does really cover a real huge swath of the grape growing winemaking land area in that part of washington and a lot of people don't know that this this part of Washington State is technically a desert. They get so little rain that it is, uh, you know, real desert conditions. So I heard that when you go over the mountain range to the west, it's it's like tropical rainforest, and then you <laughs> you go east, it's desert, yeah. right? Towards us, it's desert. But uh, interesting. And I, the other thing was funny, Ken. Well, not funny, but Walla Walla, you hear all the time, right? From from Washington, mm-hmm. it actually had a Native American meaning for water. So a lot of the AVAs with the names have something to do with water. Interesting. So goes back to the flood, I, I would assume. I don't know. This flood was a long time ago, so I don't I don't know. But very uh new area maybe for people to explore. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. If you want more information about myself, you can visit me at vinitaswineworks.com. And for more information about Mark, you can find him at franklinliquors.com. So a topic that appeared in one of our wine news updates was regarding one of these prestige bottles of wine from California that people spend ridiculous amounts of money on because they think it's just the best out there. It's a wine called Scream. Eagle, which I have had and probably will never get my hands on, but you never know. I was going to ask you, have you seen one? I'm only in pictures. I don't think I've actually physically seen a bottle of Screaming Eagle. So this is one of those wines that just has this almost mythology about it. There's this mystique about this wine that people really want to get their hands on. And it's not very widely available. There's not a lot of it made. Bottles of the 2016 vintage are going for $2,300 a bottle. So not something that's going to be landing in my wine cellar anytime soon. Yeah. Cult wine is what they call it, Kim. They call them cult wines. There's no definition legally of what's considered a cult wine. So in for wine collectors, obviously, this is a cult wine because the production is very low. And it's like we've been in the wine world so long, we've never come across. They've never tasted. <laughs> so it must be rare. It must be cult-like. That's the way I would define it. Yeah, it's sort of funny because you think about these kind of things and how do they get to be 
be this at this point is does the wine really taste that much better than than something else probably not but with these wines that have these followings and if people have the money that they want to spend spend their dollars on a bottle of wine for over a thousand dollars a bottle there must be something about that wine that is making it super highly collectible you know i, I guess it's like any luxury products, you know, if you're going to be spending $1,000 on a purse, why not $2,000 on a bottle of wine? And I think it's one of those things when you hear that it's going for two, $3,000 a bottle. As soon as you try it, you're probably going to think, oh, yeah, this is good, right? Well, I'm sure it's, you, you I'm sure it's really good, but is it $2,300 good? So you mentioned, Kim, they made 3,000 bottles in 2016 Vintage. And the story was about how they may not release a 17. And the reason was because they had smoke from wildfires in mm-hmm. Napa. And they don't feel that they can produce a quality wine, which I give them a lot of credit for. Because if you're holding out your production for the whole year, I'm curious, though, if they're going to release or sell this to someone else and they're going to say oh it's Screaming Eagle Cab and we're going to charge you a thousand dollars you know what I mean I, I don't know what they're going I to do doubt with it. it I think they dropped the fruit they, they just didn't even harvest I don't it. even think they harvested uh-huh. no which you know on the one hand that's a big risk for them to take because they know how much money they could get from each of those bunches of fruit but on the other hand they have a reputation to protect and it honestly all it's going to do is make the wine even more rare and create more of a, a desire on some people's part to get their hands on the next vintage so from a marketing perspective it might not necessarily be the worst thing for them to do but from an income perspective it's got to be really hard to lose your entire vintage it may be one of those cases where they tested some and they we talked in the past that sometimes with the smoke taint you don't realize how bad it is in the grapes until you actually ferment it Mm. and then taste it and Mm -hmm. then it gets into the wine. Right. So. And we do get this question every time that there is a wildfire incident in California. I mean, it happened after 2017. It happened after 2018. You know, we'll get these questions like, oh, what's going on with the fires? What what grapes are affected? What wineries are affected? And it did seem like, you know, we had a little bit of information about where the fires were located and who who lost their, their, their wholesalers, who lost their facilities. But we're really only just now starting to hear about, oh, this winery didn't produce wine this year because they noted that there was smoke taint in the wine. So this is really the first one that is of this super high-end cult wine status that we're hearing that because of the fires and because of the smoke taint that there just is nothing. So 57 acres they own, Kim and Napa, and they produce, it says, 5,000 cases a year. So very, very limited. Small, yeah. 5,000 cases is a small amount, folks. Their claim to fame was wine critic Robert Parker loves this wine. So I think it was 19... 1992 was the first vintage that Parker tasted. He gave it 99 points. And then 07, 10, and 12, he gave them a perfect 100 points. So that drove this whole thing to, I need to find a Screaming Eagle. Mm -hmm. Parker says it's 100 points. It's a perfect wine. Thus, that led to, if you want to get on their mailing list, because it's the only way you can get this wine, you have to wait 12 years just to get on the list for a chance to purchase. So, I mean, that's crazy. (laughs) That's almost like Patriot season tickets (laughs) wait, right? That's kind of the only thing that I can equate it to. You know, season tickets to see your favorite team that, all right, somebody has to die before you can get those season tickets. So that's just... So you may be thinking, Kim, let's go to Napa and let's go to their tasting room and and buy a glass, right? It's got to be worth it. But no, they don't have a tasting room because they don't have enough. They don't need to. Well, not only that, but they don't have enough to just give out in the tasting room for you to sample that you're never going to buy because you're not on the list. Or even if they were selling glasses in the tasting room, why? You don't need it. 
Like they're they're in this sweet spot that they don't even have to worry about doing any of that kind of promotion. The wine just sells and itself. That's money they're saving there too. Now you don't have the expense of yep. tasting room, tasting room employees, and more of that three thousand dollars for each bottle right. going in their pocket. When you're only making five thousand cases and it's going for this kind of money, why bother? We talked about in the past about counterfeiting of wines, Kim. Did you see what they do? I think it was a 2010, they started putting something on the label where if you, you had to peel it off the, and to reveal a code. So once that code is revealed, you can then trace that, that number to make sure it's an authentic bottle. Wow. But you have to actually physically peel it. Uh-huh. So, and then once you peel it, then it's shown that right, you've already tampered right. with it. So counterfeiting is huge in this product. So they, they talked about that as well. Oh. The uh, other thing I thought was funny, Kim, was the owner who purchased it, I think in 2006, the latest owner outright. He owns the part of the Los Angeles Rams. He owns part of the Denver Nuggets. He owns part of the Colorado Avalanche. So this is just part of his portfolio. So it's it, yeah, it's basically yes. his part-time gig. I'm gonna have my I'm gonna have my high-end wine in with all my sports teams, and and I'm diversifying my portfolio. Now, when you work retail, you worked at a, a huge store. Did they have Screaming Eagle? Nope. No. So I mean, that tells you when a big store like Martinetti at the time couldn't get it and they're actually a distributor so it tells you how rare it is to find it i've never seen or heard about it ever for sale in massachusetts is the only way you can get it is through their their mailing list i would think because there's no no one distributes it in mass so it's so small products they don't need distributors right not when they have this this good gig going i mean kind of good for them they used that parker emphasis back in the 90s and they they really put that to good use and it maybe this was just they were in the right place at the right time and their wine tasted good and it developed a following and with those high parker scores they just sort of hit a sweet spot and they're they're running with it but i mean on the one hand good for them because they can do that and it's kind of what everybody wishes that they could make their wines be what'd you think about the winemaker kim did you see the story about him no. 30 years old, UC Davis graduate. No. So you come out of Good for viticulture him. school, right? And then you go to the best, most cult winery <laughs> and, the, and you end up making the wines for He him. must have had some good grades. So it's obviously not the same winemaker that made the 100-point wines, right. but... I. I it's funny how it's still popular and it's totally changed winemakers, totally changed owners. She said like 2010 was the last time that it got a 20, 100 point score? I think it was 10, yeah. No, 12. 10, 7, 12, 10, and 12. Oh, okay. So that's not even points. Robert Parking do, or doing those ratings anymore. I mean, it's his yeah. publication, but it's it's new people. So yeah, it's, uh, the it's funny the how region. the brands kind of keep on keeping on even after the individuals who were originally associated with them are no longer part of the project. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information on Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information on myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to follow past episodes of our show, find us on iTunes or SoundCloud at The Wonderful World of Wine. Next, we'd like to talk with you about what the wine industry understands about connecting with wine consumers. And Kim, we're always talking about what can the wine uh, makers and manufacturers do to get people interested in wine. So they mentioned like four hot things that this is what they're doing. This is how we're getting people interested. So what would you like to talk about first or what stuck out to you? I think it's so interesting when we read about marketing because there, you know, there's no hard and fast formula for what makes a product successful due to its marketing. We just talked about Screaming Eagle and and how that wine, that cult wine 
really just sells itself and they have very little need for, you know, a tasting room or any sort of outreach like that. And then you read an article like this that talks about, okay, what is what is the wine industry doing right? What is the wine industry maybe not doing so well? And and how can certain wineries or producers or importers or these big brands try to get people to be interested in their product. Um, the big One of the big things that stuck out to me about this article was that a lot of marketing about wine is trying to figure out what consumers like and then working with that to try to sell them something new. But oftentimes consumers don't know what they like and or don't know what they want. And I think that this is particularly true with wine and why we do wine education because often people really don't know what they like. And sometimes just putting a glass of something in front of someone and figuring out, do you like this? And if you do, why or why not can be really, really valuable. But uh, yeah, sometimes at the end of the day, consumers don't know what they want and not just for wine, but for other products as well. It could be frustrating for us as educators of people. It's frustrating to find out what do we focus on? What, how do we get people interested? What are they trending? That's why we do this show to get people interested in wine. But you mentioned, Kim, about the big brands doing marketing. Years ago, I remember I was really opened up to the wine world when I read about how the big five typically corporations have actual tasting rooms dedicated to consumer input. So they'll bring people in, you know, what do you think of this? If it's too sweet, they give you another one and it's they make notes and they base new product lines on that feedback so they're basically labs research labs not the everyday winery is going to do that they're going to bring you in their tasting room you know what do you think and maybe use that feedback but not to the extent that the big corporations do so you're talking like big branded wines the big brands millions yeah, the, of cases right so because, they're they're focusing or they're actually adjusting the taste of their wine to meet what's the, the desires thing. of consumers yeah. so if it's their newest hot red blend uh, they'll put it out now and say what do you think of this well yeah it's maybe too sweet i want it sweeter i want it darker and then they'll put that forward for the next brand that they mm. release so i mean they have a lot of research going into that to follow what people are trending and profiles and, and you you mentioned which was i thought great in this article is education because now they're saying the better way other than maybe these focus groups is education and listening to what people are saying during the education. Mm -hmm. What are you interested in? What are you liking? What are you tasting? So that's good for us, right? It's good for us. And another big part of this, which sort of tied into that idea that customers or consumers really don't know what they want, is sort of to flip that and you create the demand by teaching people about your product as opposed to asking them what they like and developing a product to suit that it's more you're not asking them what they like you're just trying you're trying to influence their taste so that it matches what with what you have to offer and i think that's that flip side of those big brands manipulating their product so that it tastes the way that people think that they want as opposed to maybe some of these smaller producers that are like okay this is what we make you know we're not going to necessarily change it to what you like but how are we going to get you to want what we have to offer and i can think of maybe French, kind of French, French wine kind of pops to mind here, more, more old world sort of stuff where there's less of this adaptation to what the market is looking for and more, well, this is what we produce. This is the style that we, that we do that works here. I'm you know, th- kind of thinking about champagne and dry champagne and sort of these higher end prestige bottles of champagne. You know, you're not making a super duper dry champagne because there's all this clamoring in the market for it. It's what you make and then it's trying style. to- 
It's, yeah, it's, it's the style. It's to get you to fall in love with the region. This is what the region is producing. This is why we feel you should love it, right? Is that kind of where right. you're going with that? Yeah. Okay. Like, this is what right. we have to offer and, yeah, trying to get people to understand that this is what it is. How are we going to have you enjoy it and buy it? But, you know, still don't be confused. The industry still listens to, to media, to wine critics. They they take that a lot of that feedback to find out what's going on right. in the industry. Even to the point of if they see a certain grape is trending up, they might totally rip up vines to to plant that grape because they see in four years it's going to be popular. So things like that, they, they definitely follow. An interesting study they did with this, Kim, is they put two wines on a shelf. Did you read this? I did. Part about, mm-hmm. So they with put the pricing? two wines on, on a shelf and one of them they put like a shelf talker saying it was 90 points, right? Or And the other one was like 84 points. So obviously people bought the 90 point one more based on the marketing. Right. But when they had no points next to them, they sold equally. And this has been done with pricing as well. So there are wine obviously that people think costs more money they're going to think tastes better even if it's the exact same wine so there's a lot of psychology that goes into this sort of marketing and especially about wine i think because we know a lot about wine because it's our everyday work and we taste a lot and we like to think that we know what we're talking about but for a lot of people it's an occasional beverage for enjoyment and you might not necessarily put all the mental effort into it that we do and there's nothing wrong with that especially if it's just something that you know at the end of the day you just want to enjoy and you want to relax you might not be comparing that with a whole bunch of other similar styles to try to find the exact best wine for you so being able to use other sources to help you make a good decision is very i think valuable to a lot of consumers and that's where these sorts of things come in you had mentioned how the French, it's based on a story, it's based on a region. I didn't sense in this article that the wine industry is trying to play on the story behind, say, like the story of a big corporation. Nobody wants to hear that. We're a huge corporation. We own a million other companies, right? So Yeah, they didn't give a lot of specifics that. as to what is a good kind of marketing direction to go in. It was more this idea of influencing taste by being savvy marketers but then they didn't say well to be a savvy marketer you need to do x y and z you know it was more how do you influence media and how do you get in front of those influencers and those tastemakers and honestly in front of those people who give scores to wines that was a big part of this as well it was like okay we're not going to put our emphasis necessarily on the end consumer but who you want to be talking to is the people who are going to be writing about wine and rating wine and are going to be those wine experts that other people that end user are going to look to and are going to ask for their advice from. Well, kind of where I wanted to go with this, Kim, was to ask you (laughs) how you feel connected to, to the wines. But if it's a big corporation, I wish they would just come out and say, yeah, we're huge. We're making a ton of wine, but we feel you'll enjoy it because of this. But that's not, not but that's not sexy and it's not romantic. You know, to me, I'd rather that <laughs> We make two million cases. Than the marketing to push it, to make it seem like it's not a, a huge production wine. Yeah, you know? so but that's not where 
So that's it's about, not where they go. It's kind of about a. It's about a story to me. If they did more about the story, more about the production, more telling me the truth. So we talk about this all the time. So for you, if you see it marketed, it doesn't affect you that way. That's what I'm getting at. Is that me personally? Yeah. As a wine buyer, as a wine consumer, what would you say to the industry leaders to say, "This is what I want"? What does Kim want from the wine industry, from the big producers? I don't know. I mean, from a big producer, what I'm looking for is is does the wine taste good but you're so you're, you're really good, touching you don't on care it's a billion cases or they're using frogs in the vineyard it's, it's, uh, that, type. that was exactly what i was going to say okay. is you know with a a bigger brand it's it's harder to get transparency like you don't like you just said you don't necessarily know that this is a brand that is selling two million cases of chardonnay because they do kind of hide that there i don't feel like that is something that is readily available information to the consumer we know how to look for that information. So we know if we go to a winery's website and they really don't tell you any specifics, we kind of have the idea of, okay, either they're sourcing grapes and sourcing fruit or sourcing finished juice from all over the place and blending it or just bottling it. You know, we kind of know that that means that this is a, a bigger production. They're not necessarily paying attention or might not be paying attention to the finer points but at you know so for you the think, end consumer what it tastes like is more important so you think the wine industry knows that and understands that so they avoid it yes i'm glad we're on i'm glad we got yeah. to that point yeah. that's right i don't i don't think people i mean so they really for, don't they listen to what they want to listen to is yeah. kind of where i wanted to get back to they know this information. I think except for, you know, if you're a casual wine drinker who has a favorite brand and you just want consistency time in and time out, you know, maybe you're a Kendall Jackson Chardonnay drinker and that's what you like and that's what you want to drink. You don't want that to change vintage to vintage. You don't, you probably don't care about, we harvested the grapes on September, blah, 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 blah. That information is not of value to you. What is of value to you is that the wine is going to taste the same and taste good every single time you have it in your glass. So I think it's different for different people. And I don't necessarily know which kind of consumer these marketing people are looking at. Are they looking at those high-end consumers who, yeah, they do want to know what happened in 2016 in Burgundy? Or do they want to know that, hey, this is a big fruity red and I think it tastes delicious and I'm going to go buy more of this? Well, that's why we'll keep talking wine with our <laughs> listeners and, and keep doing education to let people know these are the options, right. right? And everybody is different. So it just matters. A larger segment of the consumer population might be leaning towards one thing or towards another. But this, I think this marketing uh, angle is, is very interesting and, and we will keep on it. Thank you for listening to us this week on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine and leave us your questions and comments. And previous episodes can be found on iTunes. Thank you. Wine, wine.